like films, don't you? You like going to the pictures and watching films. And I've stuff. enjoyed one or two. Yeah. <laughs> you really like films. All right. I was thinking about No Pun Included, right? And the way that we set up the shots and film things and I, and I film B-roll for, for the, the games and blah, uh-huh. blah, blah. And I was wondering if if you could have a choice of any director, dead or alive, to direct one of our videos, A-roll and B-roll, yeah, who would you pick? I mean, hopefully someone that I've never heard of, no one's ever heard of, and no one's going to hear of ever again. No, I wouldn't be... No! Like, why Why? Why would I want that on myself? Because imagine, imagine if we released a video and it was like, blah, blah, game, with guest director Quentin Tarantino. First or... of all, no, never. Why? Um, I just don't like Quentin Tarantino. I don't think he's... Oh, God, okay. <sighs> Whatever you might think of Quentin Tarantino, audience members aside, I don't like him as a director. I I don't like his style. I don't like his pace. I don't like his writing, and I don't like what he has to say. That's okay. But that I wasn't saying him necessarily. I just imagine, right. like imagine having yeah. blah blah video that we do with guest director, famous director cinematography name. by Roger Deakins. Yes, there right? you go, like that. That would be so terrible. Why? Why? Yeah. No, think about it. Be like, some kind of punishment for them. I, well, first of all, yes, right. Uh, they would be embarrassed for doing this, and I would be embarrassed for forcing them to do this. Well, you're not forcing them. No, like you've won a competition or uh, something. I don't know. No, I don't, this this is a fantasy thing. Like you okay, don't, I, when I said Quentin Tarantino, it was just, just the first director that popped into my head. I don't particularly like their directing. It was just the most famous one that i could think of that popped into my head uh-huh so it's a fantasy thing you could pick no, anyone I would be, you like i would be too embarrassed no, okay. i would be too embarrassed i it would just no why why would they do this also the audience expectations then would be like oh my god this is you know by ang lee or uh-huh. whatever right and it's like what what is this why is this I why does it exist <laughs> No, to I th- see how all the different directors would direct a board game video. Yeah. <laughs> no. Ah, <laughs> uh, no pun included. Reviews. Um, the new edition of Puerto Rico, directed by Alex Winters. Ah, uh, just awful. Welcome to Talk Cardboard, a podcast about board games and everything adjacent with me, Elaine, and my curly-haired cardboard companion. That's me, Afka. On today's show, we'll be covering 1,500 years of Egyptian history, apparently, in Ra, saving disorientated cats in Race to the Raft and channeling a Victorian speed-dating Marie Kondo in Obsession, as well as having an interview with teacher, poet, writer and content creator Zoe B. First, though, let's look at some of the things you've been saying to us. First, let's talk about geometry, because we've had some comments about talk cardboard and our knowledge of geometry. Chris S says, in geometry, a pyramid is a square base with four triangles. A tetrahedron is a four triangle faced polyhedron. That was a conversation on Discord, and I did show them the bit with the with the pyramid right with the tetrahedron or whatever it's also it's yeah, also a pyramid right, right? yeah and I, targaff says i'm pretty sure elaine is right that we had triangle milk in the past as well in britain mm-hmm. uh, 
It's many years hence now, but my vague recollection is that when I was in primary school, the cartons were that shape with a Capri Sun type hole in one side. We did not have in the Soviets the Capri Sun type hole. We just had to cut off the top bit of the triangle and then then you pour the milk out of the top. It's a wonder why this design hasn't survived, really. Well, funny you should say that because Roger says... The Tetra Pak Company, a name you may have seen on cartons of fruit juice, etc., got its start and name in the 1940s-50s with the idea of turning a tube of paper into a series of tetrahedral containers, the same format as Soviet Milk Triangle. One reason you don't see these as much anymore is that you can't stack them closely together. There's wasted space compared with cuboid containers, and then they go on to say about how they prefer cuboid game boxes as well because they're easier to stack. Uh-huh. So so by cuboid you mean like Well, I think they mean like squarish. Like regular ticket to ride kind right. of thing. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. They are easier to stack, I agree. Yeah. But I think I don't know, the Soviet milk triangle type thing or the the triangle of milk. Yeah, you can't stack it. It's hard to uh cut open like it goes mm. everywhere or if you do have a straw so yeah i think ours at, at school i think how how you did it was it was like a normal kind of carton where you uh open the flap and then pull it apart and then yeah. you put your straw in the little hole that you make i don't think there was a capri sun type type hole mm. that's just it's yeah it's weird how we've gone from milk to board game boxes but but it's all the same topic Well, because i asked the question yeah like, do you no i get it a, yeah a strangely shaped box because it's interesting or do you prefer having a mm. cuboidish one because it's easy to stack what do you prefer what in board games yeah boxes i, I quite like having a weirdly shaped one uh, because it's interesting and actually we've had um an email from another Chris. Chris I sent a very nice email about a game called Ubi. I think that's how you pronounce it. Ubi, maybe. They even include a photo of the box, which is the same shape as a piece of Toblerone. That my word's not theirs. They say, Ubi is a geography trivia game, except you need to actually find where stuff is on a map. And the questions are all worded in riddles. And some are red herrings there to trick you as the answer is, it's a red herring. And on top of that, it came out just before the geography of Europe changed fundamentally as the Berlin Wall came down. And attempting to play it in Australia, where no one actually raised here, even has half the European geography knowledge that you get in the UK, which is half again that anywhere else in Europe is even more impossible but it's also just so ridiculous and unique that it's sort of still fun ideally played co-op with the idea of just getting three right before you give up being a win yeah that's uh that sounds like a game night from hell um I, I'm like I, I think that sounds fun I I don't know trivia is kind of a weird thing trivia is interesting when when like you you have i don't know a group of people who are somewhat knowledgeable with the subjects right when no one knows anything and just like blindly fumbling in the dark it depends on the attitude you know of of the group if everyone's into it right it could be fun if not one person trivia, riddles trivia. yeah riddles <laughs> trivia if one person <laughs> is not having fun that brings the entire evening down you know and i'm gonna put my hand forward I might be that person. But that's what, I think that's why they say playing yeah. co-op is better because mm. then you just all, as a team, try and solve the riddles and puzzles together. 
I understand it and I appreciate it. <laughs> As a unique experience. Yes. I do not wish to partake in it. I'll have a go, I think. Yeah, okay. If you have anything to say to us, email elaine at nopunincluded.com. Let's talk about our first game. It's a feline frenzy in the face of flames. Race for the Raft comes from publisher The City of Games by designer Frank West with art by Miguel de Silva and Frank West. Very big disclaimer from the get-go. Frank West is a friend of ours. Frank West is someone we met in a professional capacity during Gen Con 2017. In the Hotel of Nightmares. Well, we met him before that, but uh, yeah... But but once we met him in the Hotel of Nightmares, we've bonded over the experience. Over the Hotel of Nightmares, yeah. yeah. It's like uh, it's like living. Do you know? Do you know the, the end of uh, Twin Peaks season two, where like it's uh, all these alert. hallways and corridors with like red car. It's it's like it's like living in the Outlook Hotel. You know that that was what it was like. It, it was just. Oh, what a what a nightmare place! Anyway, uh, that was fun. The key cards didn't work. You you needed to get like staff from downstairs to go and let you into your room, and uh, and they were playing naked and afraid nonstop on the television. And everything was dark. And everything and there were no worked. lights. Yeah, nothing. Yeah, it was. Anyway, so we bonded over that. So so uh, we doesn't exist anymore. No, we've uh, spent time at various conventions together. Um, so I'm going to be uh, maybe even more critical than normal because I I, th- I think I need to counterbalance that, especially because I don't know if you agree or not, but this is my favorite game that Frank designed. I, I he, So he's known for, he's designed free games before this uh, that are, I think, known, right? Mm-hmm. Which is The City of Kings. Uh, I Love Cats. Uh, and Vidoran Gardens. I did not like City of Kings. I appreciated Vadoran Gardens despite not enjoying it. And I quite like Isle of Cats. I thought Isle of Cats was pretty good. I think this is his best game. And and like by 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 a good mile. Um I, I really like Race to the Rough. So what's weird and funny is that uh the publisher City of Games uh publishes all their games uh made in this fantasy world that you know Frank has come up with. Uh uh, so they're all set in the same sort of universe. And the City of Kings was like a dungeon crawler, so it made sense, right? And then Vidoran Gardens was like a, a game about cute animals and, you know, card laying and sort of, you know, getting patterns and shapes together. And then Isle of Cats was like, well, this fantasy world, but it's mostly just about cats and rescuing cats and putting them onto boats. In Race to the Raft, you didn't put all the cats on the boats. Uh-oh. <laughs> so in this fantasy cat world, we need we need to get more cats towards the raft. I right? don't know why there are so many cats on this island to begin with. No, it's just it's just the cat world now. It's just like the entire world. Frank, I think, Frank, if you're listening, here's here's an idea, right? Just just change your setting. Just make Make the cats like be the sole inhabitants of this world, right? It's cat uh, world. Yeah, it's make it cat world. Everything's cats. Everything as as it was. Oh, there but is... now everyone's been magically turned into. Oh, I see. You know, uh, cats. Cats. Yeah. There is that island, isn't there? That's actually full of cats, which I think Frank knows about. I think we've spoken about this with Frank. There is like in, in on the Earth, on yeah. our Earth that we live on. There is an island that's just full of cats. Mm. And I can't remember why. I don't know if it's like people, like boats or whatever, that chuck their cats off and mm. they've bred. I can't remember why. 
but that that does exist. But they're actual cats. They're not like humanoid cats, obviously. Well, okay. So the game itself, which is kind of, it's it's weird to talk about because it blends together the two previous designs, which is Bodoran Gardens and uh, Isle of Cats, uh, in that you both lay polyaminos like an Isle of Cats, and you also kind of match cards to create patterns, as in Bodoran Gardens. Uh, so you do both in this game, but unlike either, this is now a cooperative game. And in act, if I in fact had to describe Race to the Raft, I wouldn't use any any like previous Frank games. I would say that this is more akin to Magic Maze and The Crew, where it's a co-op game and maybe a little bit of the mind. But you know that 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 bit that The Crew has, right? If that makes sense, uh, where you're kind of not allowed to communicate. So you, you you can't say to each other, like, oh, I think you should play this, or and, and your hands are secret, so you have cards. And, and the trick is that what you're trying to do is that you have different cats on, on the side of an island, uh, and the island is all kinds of different types of terrains, and the cat will only travel along uh, the terrain color that it can travel on. It can travel with one move as far as it wants to, but the problem is that all the terrain is hodgepodge. So you have these cards that you overlay on the terrain, eventually drawing, hopefully, a root of the same color that leads to the raft. But you don't just have one cat. You have maybe four cats, maybe five cats even, depending on the scenario. And they all need to get there. But the problem is every time you play a card to change the root, you also need to put a fire tile down. And you have this bag of polyamino tiles of weird and clunky shapes that you want to kind of put in a way where it doesn't cut off any cat's root, because as long as it, it is, as soon as one cat is cut off, that's it, you can't win the game anymore. All the cats need to get off, right? So this is a game where you kind of really want to be in sync with each other, because you need to understand like what the plan is. And, and, and you can discuss some things like, hey, we should get this cat first, right? But you can't talk the specifics of the cards that you have um and you can't sort of root plan yeah you can't root plan out loud basically and that's 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 kind of like a really neat interesting thing and and i think if you played magic maze or if you played the crew you sort of know what's going on uh you 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 want to tell your partner like oh you really think you should do this but you can't right and and your job is to kind of enmesh together via via brainwaves right and kind of be like i are you are you getting what i'm laying right and and if you can kind of manage that you know you'll you'll get all the cats off just in time this this tricky timing here that you need to consider because because uh like when is the time to move a cat right like you could move this cat uh like uh halfway down or you could wait and lay more track so you could move it in one swift, efficient action. But the problem with that is that moving a cat usually does not generate a fire tile, whereas laying path cards does generate a fire tile. So if you dilly-dally too long, you might block off the route. So, you know, you need to be considerate of these things. Um, what did you think of Race to the Raft? Do you know what I didn't understand about this game? And what? I even checked Board Game Geek to see if anyone had asked the same question. So one of the cats... The their preferred terrain is blue, which is water. 
Yeah. Why can't they just swim anyway? Why why do they need to be on a raft? Maybe they can only swim via rivers. They're not like oh. seaborne cats. They're just like <laughs> they like it when it's marshy or I don't know. I see. That makes sense. Mm. I like this. Um, and you haven't mentioned the best part of this game yet, which is the meow token. Yeah. Uh, because that I think that was that's brilliant. So in something like Magic Maze, you have uh, if you've played Magic Maze, you'll know you have this like dobber thing that you just frantically smash in front of someone when you want them to understand that either their idea is really bad or there is something better that they could be doing. Uh-huh. Uh, and Race for the Raft also has a similar mechanism where um, you have this meow token where you can just meow at someone. Uh, you don't smash it in front of them necessarily, no. but you can meow in any way that you like. So you could be like, meow, meaning, you know, that's not a great idea. Or meow, meaning that's probably a good idea. Uh-huh. You can communicate via yeah. different meows yeah. uh, just for one round. And what's brilliant is like you 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 watch your opponent like try and place a tile because once they revealed a tile like they have to play they it somewhere have yeah. to play it somewhere right and then like they're going wrong and you're going or in what your opinion is wrong right yeah. but like the the thing about that what's beautiful about that is you know it's wrong because of the cards you have in your hand yes right. So you you're trying to communicate to them, look, if you put it here, that's like, going to ruin my next move. Yeah, yeah exactly, right? And, and what's funny is that like these cards that you draw as well, they're from these like different four different decks that have the PlayStation symbols on them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and unlike Next Station London, it is literally the four PlayStation symbols. Um so but each deck, the backs of the cards shows the percentage of the type of terrain that you'll encounter on those cards not like as in there's a number but like the way the card is div- the, the back of the card is divvied up in colors shows how much of that color is there which is just such a weird but cool way of doing it but not necessarily but in that deck not necessarily yeah. on an individual card so all mm. the backs of the cards of that symbol are the same but the uh face of each yeah. card is different it just visually shows you the odds it doesn't say oh there's a 37 percent chance that you know you'll draw blue right but no you don't see 37 percent you just see like, oh, it's about that much of it, right? Uh-huh. Which I think is a very nice and sweet way of doing it. There's also another token, which is the cat girl token, uh, which lets you just directly talk for one placement as well with uh, your friends and kind of actually, well, with just the one person, actually. It just lets you talk with the one person who's placing the tile. If you're playing with more than two people, the others have to stay stum, right? And... and the, this is this there's a nice balance of like because you only get to use it once per game Mm. um it's it's really precious yeah it is really precious so you don't want to just immediately blow it there's something like 83 scenarios in 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 the base there is a lot there's just so much of this game and the way it's parceled out and I think we're going to arrive at a criticism here. Like, I really like this game. Just just so, you know, I plant my flag where it needs to be, right? But where it falls down, as opposed to something like The Crew, for me, I think it's better than Magic Maze, is 
the scenarios are parceled out so slowly, right? Like the the level of advancement you get from scenario to scenario and how it feels different and what new challenges it poses, right? Is done at a snail's pace. Mm. And that is both good and bad. Yeah, I just wanted to say, I think Frank is very good at um, making a game. And I think this was true of Isle of Cats too. Making a game that if you're not experienced with games, there is a way that it will lead you in really well into Mm -hmm. how to play it and what the mechanisms. Maybe you've never ever played a polyomino uh, tile laying game, whatever. Uh, and or you've never played a board game i think this would be okay this mm. really guides you and holds your hand into what happens next at every step and i didn't find it slow uh i just thought okay maybe we can skip this bit if we need to and it does even say that like so there is a mechanism in this where you play through the introductory scenarios and if you found them very challenging mm. there are practice scenarios that you could also do um but if you didn't find them challenging at all, uh, you can just go ahead. Uh, and I like that a lot because there is something for people that are just coming into games, but there is also something for in there for people that play games a lot. Well, okay, so here's my thing. I like everything that you just said, right, in theory. In practice, I think where Race to the Raft falls down a little bit, and we're getting into the weeds here, but where it fall, for me falls down a little bit in execution is that I had to play four games... Mm-hmm which is the, like, practice session, the introductory session, sorry. There's the introductory session. Then there's the practice session. Then there's the campaign one, and you felt like like the introduction was easy. You can go, like, straight into campaign two. Um, But then there's campaign three and four. And then there's the advanced game tutorial. And then there's four more campaigns, each having, like, you know, N number of games in them. There's something to be said about starting with your best foot forward, right? And four games of Race to the Raft for a practice session was already for me, like, okay, I get it. An but introductory it's, session. Yeah, sorry, no, rather than yeah. practice, yeah. yeah. But but that was, like, tutor- tutorial is yeah. what I mean, right? Four games, just tutorial is too slow. And, and I appreciate that, you know, this is approachable for absolutely everyone or as many people as it can be but i wish there was a more condensed best of right like that that i could go through that kind of you know shows me shows me the cool things one at a time you know rather than very slowly building up right and i guess it's just different right and i appreciate that it's different but for me, it was too slow. I wanted to get to the meat. And it would be nice if the rulebook said, hey, if you don't want like to play 83 games of this to experience everything that the game has to offer, here's play this, 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 that, that, that. You know, like 15 or so games of, of the best it has to offer, you know, kind of condensed but this is you, your journey. You know what the best is. Well, I that's, mean, that's a personal opinion. I, I think it, it's a bit like with the crew, where you might not want to plod through all the scenarios. But if you're someone who does play games a lot, there is nothing stopping you from making that decision of your own. Okay, I'm going to skip a few scenarios and and mm. go ahead if if that's what you want to do. There's nothing. That no, that's true. Doing that. Well, but the weird thing is that, like, um, you know. 
I didn't find winning the early scenarios very hard at all, right? But there's a scoring system, and the point is to, you know, not use any of these helper tiles because they decrease your score, and then you have the entire score for the campaign. The way the game is framed is like you you play a campaign, right? And and that's quite a few games to go through, uh, you know, to get a score. And if you find that it's like, oh, this is just too easy. Okay, are we scrapping this entire campaign? Just... I think there's, there's a lot in here, which is fine. But the way this game is structured and all the campaigns are structured, for me, isn't perfect. And it doesn't exemplify the best parts of the game. I think I think you say, who's to say what's the best of? Well, probably Frank, right? Because as, as a designer, this is where you make an executive decision and say, right, okay, I want people to see, you know, all the best bits of my game. Here's what they should play, right? Um, but hey, that's just me. Uh, I I did otherwise. Then, no, because then you'd get people going, oh no, why did Frank say this was the best? And this is awful. La la, whatever. No, know. I'm sorry, but no, but like that's that's the criticism. This is my favorite one. That's the criticism you face anytime you make anything, right? <laughs> this is true. Like this is very true. But um, just to be contrary, right? Um, I think that as well as playing a lot of games, you know, we do live together and we spend a lot of time together. So you said it was very easy at the beginning, but Mm -hmm. maybe it wouldn't be if you didn't spend literally 24 hours a day with the other person you're playing with. (laughs) I mean, maybe, you know, it's one of these things that's like, um, uh, you know, uh, how well do you know this person and and how well do you vibe with them uh, is definitely one of those games. And and just to sort of bounce back from my criticism, I did enjoy a lot of it. There's some cool like stuff that you discover as you play. There is there is the sense of like you kind of through this slow pace, you build your foundations of the strategies of the game um as you experience it like you kind of learn oh wait okay so the card is always you know three by three squares so when you kind of internalize that the the way you place cards becomes very different and and you're accounting for it and then suddenly you realize that if you place a fire tile in a certain place it's like oh wait i can't place it like that because it'll immediately block any free uh three by three path so you don't want to do that. And if your partner hasn't caught on to that, you're sitting there going, I need I need to spend it, I need to spend a token. I need to spend a token because because I need to explain this, right? And then you're suddenly like on the same brain wave. Um and that you was did quite start nice. Yeah. Loudly meowing at me when I tried to place a fire token once. Uh-huh. Title once you were like meow. <laughs> 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 I was like, okay, I don't know where. To... And then, and then I just, I didn't know where to place it, and I'm just sort of edging it around the board. Mm. And and you were going meow, 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 like this. It was like some sort of sonar thing. Mm. <laughs> it was very funny. I had a nice time doing that. It, it's a nice game. It's very pleasant. It's it's more chill uh, than uh, the crew or Magic Maze. Magic Maze is very frantic. It's, you know, all about like, ah, you know, having these sort of like frustration moments of like, everyone's quiet, but you're kind of like holding your head in your hands and going, <laughs> ah, in your head, right? The crew is just, I don't know, it's very crisp, right? There's maps and probabilities and all of that. It's a lot of fun. Uh, Race to the Raft is all of those kind of elements of those games, but it's more just kind of like chill 
and relaxed and you're sort of placing tiles and you're drawing these paths and like i looked into future scenarios there's also advanced game mode where you also have this special path that overlays other paths for the oshax cats which are like the special cats so they have their own path that traces through other paths right which you know adds a layer of crunch um i think what we're gonna do is we're gonna talk uh, in a future bonus episode about the advanced mode of Race to the Raft because we haven't played it yet and I quite like to see how the game kind of you know evolves from mm. from from this rule set because there's more crunch and there's one more final bit I'd like to say uh, there's a Kickstarter pack as a back this game on Kickstarter so it's like bonus stuff you know and the scenarios in that look really elaborate and really cool and none of the scenarios I'm not going to say they're not as hard, right? But none of the scenarios in the base retail box look as elaborate. And I just wish, wish, wish that, you know, all the very elaborate stuff wasn't just relegated mm. to the Kickstarter extras. Yeah, I mean, that's a problem with Kickstarter sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, it's not. It's a common problem, I think. Mm -hmm. The only thing I, I want to say about production is that we uh, preferred the base components to the kickstarter components yeah that's true because they were easier to place um the yeah. cats were easier to place because they they're nicer so the, you have wooden wooden cat tokens yeah. in 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 the regular box and then you have plastic cat miniatures in the kickstarter deluxe thing and you need to tip cats once they moved because then moving cats becomes more expensive um so you can't tip a miniature well Especially a cat miniature because the sort of round was a, a wooden a wooden shape is much easier to tip and and uh, wood is nicer than plastic yeah also, it's just I a think. nicer feel so from a usability perspective and from a st an aesthetic perspective the wooden cats were nice but you but you don't get the cat girl and the meow tokens in wood in in the regular one you, just you, you get just cardboard ones right which is it's like there isn't a version of this that's you know mm. gives you everything you want. Mm. The art on the cat girl token was a little bit weird for me because it, it was very Jacqueline Wilson, uh, whereas the rest of the game, the art style is more like it was in Isle of Cats. Mm -hmm. it, it just it didn't kind of gel for me. Yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, I know what you mean. I know. I do. I like it. it it's a very different art style, mm. but it was. It almost takes you out of the game. But also, the cat girl token is the most powerful token because it's the one that lets you speak. Yes. Right? So it makes sense that it's different. I guess, yeah. Because it kind of says, like, this is special, yeah, right? Uh-huh. Um, so it was fun for me. Uh, again, we are being super nitpicky because Frank's our friend. and uh, I like this game a lot, though, overall. Yeah. Overall, I liked it a lot. Last episode, we spoke a little bit about hidden movement games, right? And uh, Brock has said, I love, love, love hidden movement games, but I don't get to play them that often these days. It's hard enough getting people to play a non-Euro worker placement at the club. And Latro says, I'm empathising with Elaine a bit. I don't hate those games. I just suck at them. Social deduction, I out myself at the very moment I open my mouth or fail to open it. And hidden movement, I proceed to count loudly the locations I'm moving. <laughs> I thought that's quite funny. I mean, that's very cute. 
Unfortunate, but cute. I've played it at four player and you essentially don't see the same hand to draw from it twice, making long-term planning very difficult. We had some very hard-seeming goals come out and were playing with animals, so the game really hinted at big ambition, but it felt down to chance almost whether you would get what you needed to finish your route. I thought about this and I think I solved it, right? right. There is a way to simulate two players a two-player game in trailblazers in a three or four player game so the drafting basically happens the same way so because you effectively you draw eight cards right and then you take two pass take two pass take two pass instead of passing them to the left all the time you draw eight cards take two pass to the left then you take two pass to the right and then you after you take another two, you discard the remaining two, right? So what that does is you took two cards, mm -hmm. you passed them to the left, mm -hmm. you got cards from the right. Mm -hmm. Now you have a new hand of six mm -hmm. cards. You take two cards, pass them back to the right, and you get yours one back from the left. I see. Right? So it's like you get your hand, which is, which is then the same as a two-player game. Everyone who likes Trailblazers, thank me later. Thank you so much for letting us know your thoughts. Email me, elaine at nopunincluded.com. Still to come, we have Obsession and an interview with the wonderful Zoe B. First, though, is a staple of many people's collections from 1999. Ra comes from publisher 25th Century Games by designer Reiner Knizia with art by Ian O'Toole. So that's the latest version. It was originally published by Aaliyah and then Windrider, which was the FFG version, right? Um, Ra's back and it's back on this podcast. In one legacy episode, I have discussed my experience of Ra and the whole pitch was, Elaine, do you think you'll like this because you don't like auction games? Now, after last episode, we decided you should try Ra and now you have. So I'm not going to, reintroduce Ra, right? I, I guess we can briefly reintroduce Ra. We can say it's a Reiner Knizia tile auction game where you where you auction things off Set and collection. collect sets and someone wins at the end of the game. Elaine, what did you think of Ra? I had a nice time playing Ra. Did you like an yes, auction game? I did like an auction game. Reiner Knizia has done it again. <laughs> <laughs> He's jammy, that one, isn't he? Uh, uh, I think I liked it because the thing I don't like about auctions is um, that I never know what to open a bid with. Um, and this does help you with that because you only have three tiles with different numbers on that you can use to bid. Mm -hmm. So it's not like you have you know, an infinite amount of money that, or not an infinite, but a set amount of money that you could use all of it to bid on something or none of it. And then you don't know what anyone else is going to bid or what this is worth to them or even to you sometimes. So, but this, where you only have three, you have to think about, do I really need this thing or do I not? Should I be bidding on this or should I not? Mm. And I think that made it a lot easier and a lot more um clear in some ways yeah it's a weird auction game where all information is absolutely public you know what you're bidding for you know what's going to happen if you win you know what's going to happen if you don't win uh, nothing well nothing but you know what you're <laughs> losing out on right you only have at best three things to bid with which is your good tile your bad tile and your average tile and also you know whether the tiles your opponents have 
can outbid you or not. So, for example, if you have the 13, which is the highest bidding tile, you can just go, well, I win this one. Yeah, that's that's a good point, actually. You also know what everyone else has. It's not just that you know what you have. The, none of the, I guess, currency in that sense is secret. Mm-hmm. So you know if someone is able to outbid you or not. Mm. But it's a funky game, isn't it? Because so you on on your turn, you either draw a new tile from the bag Mm-hmm. Or you start an auction for the tiles that everyone's drawn, right? And if you just draw a tile, all you do is just, you draw a tile. So you draw a tile and you add it to the tableau that basically, it's like a kitty, right? Like it keeps growing and growing and growing. It's almost like when you raise in poker, right? And it, it it's it's got that feel of like, if you're drawing a tile you're kind of upping the stakes, right? Yeah. Because you could draw... There's so many different tiles and they interact in so many different ways. So there's the pharaoh. If you have the most pharaohs, you'll win five points. You have at least, you'll lose two points, right? That's simple. But then there's monuments, which don't score at the end of the round, but they'll score at the end of the game if you have set collected them in different ways. There's a god tile, which will let you take something out of the kitty, but you discard the god tile, otherwise it's worth two points. And so on and on. There's so many different variables i don't think this can be called a game that breaks the rule of me not liking auction games though because auctioning isn't a central mechanism it's just something that facilitates you to do something else Mm. uh to do the set collecting or to get the tiles that you want or that's it really (laughs) that's what you want oh that was brilliant (laughs) you know what i mean but you understand what i mean like Mm. it's not like in a game like um modern art that is the central mechanism. You don't know what anyone else has got. You don't know how much anyone else has got. You don't know what uh, they necessarily want to bid on. So you don't know if you bid $5 or whatever it is, if someone else can outbid you or not. Mm. Uh, and that's all you are doing turn after turn and, and in slightly different ways because, you know, the auctions work in slightly different ways. But, but in this, it just facilitates you to get the tiles. Yeah, I guess. I see what and you mean. And build your set or build your collection of different things or get gold or do whatever you want to do. It, or that's all it does. It's a vehicle. <laughs> but it's still the focal point of the game, right? Because there is something about that auction that that just makes it like, oh, that was a good play. Or that was a smart move. Or, oh, I can't believe I've done that. You know, that sort of thing. No, I, no, I didn't find that really. All, all, the only feeling I felt was... I really would like to win this auction, but I can't because uh, I can't guarantee that I win this auction. I can't put in like $500 and then I will mm. guarantee myself this the win because I know that if I put in a seven, you've got a eight and someone else has got a nine. Yeah. So it's possible, unless you don't want this, unless you haven't, either you haven't seen what I have seen mm. or this doesn't um, help you in any way. This set of tiles doesn't help you in any way then I'm not going to win this auction. But, it's but never... I can have a go. I can have a go because maybe you don't want it. That's that, And I think that's what I liked about it. Well, that's, that was the thing. It's never that daft. It's never like, oh, well, I can't win this. I can't do anything, right? Because even if you have a two and everyone else has like sevens, eights, nines, and tens, right? Like theoretically, you are always outbid, right? But also you can, you can just... By starting an auction, you can really throw things in for a loop because you either draw a tile or start an auction or there's the third action, replace your god tile with a tile from the kitty. Uh, but but the weird thing is that, like, 
sometimes you don't know what's going to happen. You don't know how you can provoke other players to behave, <laughs> right? And it is about, like, it is sometimes about playing people and what they want, because the thing always grows and the greed is always bigger, right? The other thing I liked, though, about it was that sometimes it's not a player that's starting an auction. It's the game that is starting an auction. So in the same bag of tiles that you are using for the set collecting or the mm. getting the gold or the fairies or whatever, there are tiles that will start... There are tiles that will start an auction. Yeah. So, and if that happens, if you draw a Ra tile, you can still pass. Whereas if you invoke Ra and you start an auction on purpose uh, by using this little meeple of Ra... Uh, you have to then bid. Yes. Right. So sometimes the game will just say, no, go and have an auction. Out. And that's that was hilarious because yeah. sometimes they come out three in a row and nobody actually wants the thing on the board anyway. Mm. Right. But then like, so that that did happen. Like it came out a couple of times in a row. And I think the first one, everyone passed. Then the second time we were like, mm, maybe this is all right. You know, because no one else is going to bid. So if I put my two in or whatever i probably will get this time maybe that's worth it and i think that thinkiness of when an auction starts and having that time to kind of process whether you want to actually bid something or not is is very intriguing yeah and, and it's weird because you can you can sort of like convince people that you're starting an auction just to be a menace right <laughs> i did like but but also but also like you secretly want the thing right yes. and that's how you can win with the two like oh i'm just i'm just being a menace right and then no one bids and you go oh, i'll have this for two right like there's so many clever plays you can do and that's what i mean right like the game allows you to be clever right it's never just like you know oh well you know i'll bid a seven and i'll win or lose who knows mm. maybe right mm. it's more about like what can i do with this seven right you are given a stick um, uh, some glue and uh, some paper and you're told to make MacGyver it yeah MacGyver it into a boat right and you're like how can I do this yeah and th there's definitely a kind of push your luck with it which mm. I, push your luck for me is either win or lose like mm. sometimes it, it goes well and sometimes I hate it Sometimes I really enjoy it and sometimes I hate it. And in this, I enjoyed it because there were times when I thought, shall I just draw another tile? And if I do draw a tile at this point, what are the other players going to do? Is someone going to invoke Ra? Um, or do I just invoke Ra now? Uh, and because some of the tiles that come out are negative tiles as well. So, so as well as getting the positive ones that you want, maybe one will then come out that you actually don't want and is going to kind of ruin what you thought you were going to get from an auction mm. um and and that made it a lot more interesting i think because I think there so, were yeah. times when what was on the board was something i quite wanted but it wasn't perfect so i thought okay if i just draw another tile let's <laughs> see what happens and mm. you know if you're playing a four player game there's three other people around the table that are going to do something that you have no control over but if someone does start um, an auction if they do invoke Ra, it's not them that bids first it's the player next to them right mm -hmm. so they have information you have information uh and that i found really intriguing and and really clever so if our enthusiastic ramble has 
excited you and made you go, oh, okay, this, whatever they're talking about here, this sounds interesting. So here's the deal with Ra. This is a classic game, like Elaine mentioned, from 1999. From the last century, last millennium even. Yeah, right. Uh, but but it's been re-released in a modern version. Uh, so uh, published in 25th, 25th century games, brought on famed board game artist Ian O'Toole to O'Toolify the artwork. It looks great. There are two versions, which is the normal one with cardboard, uh, which works fine and I think is good. And then there's the fancy one, which is with lots of wooden tiles, which I would only recommend buying if you already know that you really write like Ra. I mean, a lot of people do. And if there is, if there is a game that deserves this sort of like deluxified kind of like all out there wooden tiles, Ra is probably one of those games. You know, it's been around for yonks. Uh, people who like it know they like it. So I think there's something, a little bit of something for everyone. People, people who are new to Ra, they should probably just get try and get the regular retail version. You'll be fine. Don't worry, you don't need the fancy tiles, right? If you know you love Ra, again, here's an option for you. You can get the fancy tiles, right? But also it's just available again because it didn't used to be, right? And I, I think that's quite nice that we can talk about Ra, a classic game that has been gone and is now back. And all we need now is a new Tigris and Euphrates. <laughs> is Do that you know, your dream? Well, no, there's rumors of... of, of oh, is there? Yeah. Uh, so so mm. I, it's all but officially announced, but we don't know who the publisher is. And we just know it's coming around spiel time, apparently. Uh, and uh, apparently Reiner Knizia hasn't, hasn't even seen the art assets or anything like that so so who knows but this he has publicly talked about this tigris and euphrates is coming back right you know how i don't generally get that excited um for games in the future i mm -hmm. like to wait until i see them and they come out and i you know i can play it and that's that's maybe the exception yeah you're excited about tigris and euphrates this spiel. yeah this that, spiel. that's that's quite exciting that is quite exciting yeah. right yeah and now our interview with Zoe B. Delighted to welcome to the show Zoe B. You might know Zoe from her YouTube channel, also called Zoe B, where she makes videos about educational, cultural, social and political issues. But today we aren't talking about those. We're talking cardboard, <laughs> board games, because I hear Zoe, you like them. Is, is that I true? Do. do you like board yes, games? Yes, I do. I, I very much like board games. So I'm terrible at them, but I love them. <laughs> me too. So how, how did we get here? What is, I want to ask, right? Like, and we can go back as far as possible. Oh, gosh. I know. <laughs> what is your earliest board game memory? Like, what do you remember, you know, like, oh, games, cool. So I didn't have a lot of friends growing up. Uh, I was a very lonely child. And so my first experience with board games was single player games, uh, a lot of like Boggle and uh, oh, I forget what it was called. The like traffic jam game where you have to like solve the puzzle of like the cars to like get the car out. Uh, a lot of those kinds of games. Um, but my family was also very big into card games. And so we played a lot of card games together as a family. And of course, you know, the traditional Monopoly, Game of Life, Clue, etc. 
Uh, one of my earliest big board game memories is my family decided to play Monopoly with real money, uh, where $500 okay. was, it was $5 and we, you know, we're not, mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. it was not children playing with hundred dollar bills. Uh, but I was probably seven or eight at the time and it went horribly. It was terrible. And I remember I threw a fit and my older sister was ruthless and she wanted to win at all costs. And it was just, it was a nightmare. Uh, so not, not a lot of like incredibly positive <laughs> memories of yeah. board games from my childhood, but, uh, things definitely changed later. Um, it was later in college when I actually got into, you know, the like real board games. Sure. Yeah. Okay. And I really want to get into that, but, but, but I do want to ask for, sorry, Monopoly with real money. So, yes. so, so how much was $5 to you then? Is it, was that like, it was, I think I, I didn't really have like a, a real concept of monetary value as a I child. I think your sister did by the sound of it. Oh yeah. Well, she, she went on to, uh, get a business degree. So Mm -hmm. it tracks. Um, but, but yeah, no, I think what our plan was is that we would take our winnings if we won and get to do like a shopping spree for like candy and stuff, you know, like kid things that kids like. Um, so it, it was not, I, it felt just, it felt fake to me, even Mm. as a child. Mm. That's kind of awesome, actually. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think so. So I, I don't know. I have like a personal interest in in how much we treat games as fake versus how how much mm. of what we experience of them is actually real. And I I am immediately I- intrigued by you saying, oh, no, to me, this was just like nothing. But to someone else, you know, this meant a lot of things. So, yeah, that I, I find that story immediately compelling. Yeah, that is really interesting that I don't really have anything super exciting to say on the topic, but mm. I am also very interested in that idea of what is real and what is not real. That's I'll have to think about that. OK, so you mentioned college. Is, is that where you uh, tried, quote unquote, real board games? Yeah, it was. Well, so college, that was when I got into like party games Mm. Um, and so there were things like, you know, apples to apples and cards against humanity and things like that, which I didn't really love. But, um, I, there was one summer while I was in college that, um, my now husband had an internship. And so he and I were living together while he was doing this internship over the summer and he met these very cool friends at work at that internship And they invited us over to a game night. And of course, they were much older. They were, you know, in their like early 30s and we were just these college kids. And um, they were the first people to really introduce us to the world of what board games could be. Mm. Uh, And so we played things like, I'm trying to even remember. I I know we played Secret Hitler um, and some other of those like social deduction sort of games. and I, there was part of me that enjoyed them just because it was different, but I also didn't really like the social deduction element of it. Um, Cause I, in college I had like 
debilitating social anxiety, I was very diff. It was very difficult for me to. I don't know, like talk to people and and be a person around other people, especially these, you know, like super cool, you know, 30 something hipsters that we were suddenly friends with. And uh, so I struggled a lot with those games, but it did open my eyes to this entire world. Um, And then it was from there that we started, you know, like watching No Mm. Pun Included, uh, for instance, and um, figuring out like what board games were um and Mm. then we started buying our own and figuring out what we liked and sort of like curating um our collection from there so social deduction games can be they can be quite divisive and and there is definitely an aspect of them that is um you know there there's there's a lot of social pressure but what i i find immediately interesting is that you clearly uh encountered a lot of games that didn't suit you immediately and yet there was still something there that propelled you to explore further right Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. can can we get to that maybe bit where there is something that's like oh yeah now i i really dig this you know this is finally i've arrived at something that's that's for me yeah i think i don't know it's hard for me to put my finger on what it was specifically that yeah, made me like keep going with board games, even though that I hadn't really found any that I liked. I think it was the, the like social problem solving element of it. Um, and also with some of the other games that I started getting into the like collaborative, like storytelling. Um, Cause I've always like, I've, I don't know if you knew this, but I'm a little bit of like a huge nerd. And so I'm really into um, like problem solving stuff and this like critical thinking kind of thing. And so any games where I was able to work with other people, um, definitely with other people, I definitely prefer cooperative games rather than competitive games. Because again, I'm terrible at board games. Uh, But any games where I could work with other people to solve problems and tell stories with other people and just do this like creative critical stuff with other people um in a like relatively bounded setting that like has you know rules and constraints Mm. and whatever um i think that was what i loved and so you do get like little bits of that with you know even like classic games um and so i think maybe that was like the thread that i held on to um, that then led me to some of the, I don't know, what is it, what is a good word for the like, quote unquote, real games? The like, we don't have that. We're still very oh, awkward gosh. about that. Yeah. We're all very <laughs> awkward about that because we know that there is a delineation and some people are kind of, I think, starting to work at least behind the scenes to, to, to get it closer to like, no, just games are just games, right? Mm, it doesn't mm-hmm. matter whether you like Monopoly or, you know, you like Gloomhaven. We're all yeah. in the same kind of ballpark area. But the problem is like our industry is led a lot by publishers because because that's where the money is. That's who makes the money. And so they, they make the decisions. And financially, it doesn't make sense to merge them all into one group, you know, because yeah. you're not going to sell Gloomhaven to a person who likes Monopoly. <laughs> um, uh, but you know, we, I think I think the more these barriers are going to melt over time, the more this is going to be. It's just games, it's just board games. Board yeah. games are this, you know. But we're not there yet, and we don't have a good word for it. 
Uh, I think there's uh, mass market games and hobby games is the closest mm. it comes to. Yeah, it's that weird delineation, like in in you know writing circles of like genre books versus literary books. When uh-huh. it's like, is there is there really a line between those? Don't know. Let's ask David Mitchell. I think he works in both. So, okay. So, uh, I am I am definitely digging that vibe of like uh, finding finding get something like cooperative problem solving in games because that to me speaks of um, like a positive experience, like an experience that's uh, progressing towards something constructive, right? Uh, mm-hmm. So. I'm wondering if this is where I bring in education into the subject because I know I I know you talk a lot about education, right? Uh, mm-hmm. And and I have always wanted to know what is it actually, and this is a big question: what is it that board games can teach us, and maybe more importantly, what is it that they can't teach us? Um, so I think when we think of like learning, we sort of need to break it down into two different types of learning. So we have like content knowledge. And so that's things like facts and your times tables, etc. You know, stuff that you like memorize and just knowledge about the world that you should know. But then you also have the more like nebulous stuff. And that's your, you know, critical thinking, problem solving, like rhetorical tools. Um, Stuff like that. And I think that games, unsurprisingly, are much better at that nebulous, squishy sort of Mm -hmm. knowledge rather than the, like, content knowledge stuff. Um, And so now that we have that broken down, we can then break down the nebulous, squishy stuff into further categories. Um, And I think that it's not so much about, like, what games can't do or what games are bad at doing and more about like what games prioritize Mm. and how that can be used positively or negatively um so for instance um i don't know if you're familiar with the movie arrival um that is one of my favorite films as a person who is really interested in language um and science fiction but Basically, these aliens come to Earth and people in different cultures have to figure out how to communicate with these aliens. And uh, during one part of the movie, it is revealed that I think it's the Chinese are using um, games to communicate and like teach concepts to these aliens. Mm. And the protagonist of the film takes issue with that. Because the way she sees it is when you're using games, I think they were using like Mahjong um, and like chess. Mm -hmm. And she says, when you're using games like that to teach concepts, you have to think about what else is like implicitly being taught there. Mm. And what is being implicitly taught with games like that is that there is, there are like concrete winners and losers. Yeah. And that winning and losing comes down to you know, like taking things from the other person. It's like a combative, um, it's just, it's a, it's a, it's a competition. It's um, conflict, right? Yeah. Yes. Mm. And so I think that's like games can teach us a lot, but some games teach 
they, they just teach different things. Um, and so if you focus on games that have very clear win conditions, or even if we think about things like Sellers of Catan, where it's all about like getting land and extracting resources or like Monopoly that is all about hoarding money and making life miserable for other people. Uh, that is what those games are teaching us. Um, but when we have other games like, oh gosh, um, games that are about like exploration and working together to solve problems like Forbidden Desert, mm-hmm. for instance, um, or games that are more about like collaborative storytelling and myth making with things like a quiet year. I mean, that's what those games are teaching us. You mm. know, they're teaching us that we can work with other people to create new things. Um, and we can work with other people to solve our problems. Um, and that's not to say that, you know, all of the games that are about, uh, conquering land and extracting resources are bad. Like I really enjoy real-time strategy video games. I like seeing numbers go up, Uh, but we just have to, I think, be conscious about what is being implied and be aware that with some of those games, they're, you know, reflecting back a version of reality where things are very cut and dry, winners and losers, you know, mm-hmm. and so it's about, I don't know. I, th- I think that games that do not have those sort of cut and dry situations um, just give us an expanded repertoire, I guess, to pull from for what we can imagine the world to be, which that maybe sounds a little too, you know, like naive, well, hippie. But I, I've, I've got a question <laughs> for you immediately. Uh, so you did okay. mention Monopoly, and I, th- I think this is this story is pretty well known. So stop me if you've heard it before. But famously, the purpose of Monopoly was to be an educational game, as it was originally developed, the landlord's game. So it was it was satire, you know. But mm-hmm. it was it was popular among students and propagated by students. And um, you know, its intent was to teach people of you know the the evils of hoarding real estate or whatever, right? Capitalism. Yeah. Um, so, so do you think, do you think that Monopoly like fails at that before it even starts because it it is trying to teach something whereas conflict is already inbaked into it from the beginning? I, yes, I think it fails on multiple fronts. I think the fact that you win the game by hoarding resources. Like, if it is supposed to be satire, it's doing a very bad job at it. Um, like, don't reward the bad thing if you don't, if you want to teach that the thing is bad. You know what I mean? Mm. Um, but it just, it reminds me of the fact that the concept of pulling yourself up by your bootstraps was also that, like, phrasing was originally used as satire to like show how silly that is like no physically literally you cannot pull yourself up by your bootstraps that is not a thing that can even happen isn't that absurd just like it is absurd to you know tell people that that's what you should be doing like economically um and yet 
you know, these are things that are used then to perpetuate the very things that they were trying to combat or, you know, satirize. So, yeah, I mean, I don't have a solution of like what a better satirical board game would be, but Monopoly definitely is not that. <laughs> What's well, funny, we remember, we usually through history only remember satire as fact because, you know, ver another very famous thing is Schrodinger's cat. And that was satire mm -hmm. because the whole point of it was to say, this is absurd, right? Yeah. But like through an educational way. And everyone went, oh yeah, the cat thing, right? That's how it works. <laughs> no, the cat so, is definitely yeah, I guess the... only alive oh, or sorry. dead. Sorry, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I guess the question is like, is the satire itself bad? Or does that just mean that we are all terrible at like reading satire? I, I've already learned a lot. Um, so have you have you ever used board games in, in an educational capacity, uh, personally? I have not. I desperately wanted to. So when I was in graduate school, I had a teaching position and the school that I was at was just amazing in that they allowed their graduate student teachers to essentially like we had full reign over how we wanted to build our classes. I was teaching writing um, and we could build our classes however we wanted. We could use any like theme we wanted, assign any sort of assignments. As long as we like met the um, like learning objectives, we could do it however we wanted. And so every semester that I taught, I used a different theme because I just love thinking about teaching and, and teaching in creative ways. And there was one semester where I actually planned to... I was like working on building the class around um, board games because I wanted to try out like project-based learning. And I thought, oh, it would be so cool if the like projects that they were working on or like working towards uh, by the end of the semester was like making their own board games. Like, wouldn't that be so cool? Uh, and then there were just some like, I had some personal issues that summer um, and ended up having to scrap that idea and just totally started over from scratch, but I still hold on to that and think about how cool that would be and how much I would love to teach writing using board game creation and like game design. And it's, ugh. so no, I haven't used board games at all, but I desperately wish to. Probably one of the things that stood out when I heard concept to me immediately was, yes, it's great because so many people immediately get on board with it, right? Mm -hmm. and, it and it does make us think in a different way so i guess would you say it's it is specifically like uh that aspect of making you i guess like broadening your perception is is that what board games can deliver because like it makes you think in a different way right yeah i think it's it's that like lateral thinking it's that yeah changing of perspective um Honestly, even to some extent, like an empathy thing, because you have to, or I guess if you don't want to use the word empathy, you can use like the word rhetorical. It's a, it's a rhetorical practice because it's thinking about how other people are going to perceive and understand the things you're saying um, and the things that you're doing. And so with concept, it can't just be, well, if you're a good player, it can't just be about... <laughs> Um, you know, the, the connections that you see between ideas. Um, you have to think about how it is going to appear to other people. Um, 
And that helps with, you know, communication skills and rhetorical skills and just all of those connecting with other people and working together to solve problems skills um, that, yeah, I think board games are are great uh, at cultivating. If I'm, I'm going to try and come back to this question from another angle. If, if you had to pick something off of your shelf and be like, oh, I can use this in an educational setting, what game would that be and why? There's a couple. And I guess it depends on what you mean by board game. Do you consider tabletop like role-playing games or just like any like pencil and paper, tabletop games, board games? Um, I, yeah, we can have a broad definition. It's fine. Okay. Because um, I think if we're going like more traditional style board games, I think Pandemic is a strong contender. Um, but Topical. if we're also including... Yeah, <laughs> uh, we haven't played that game in a couple of years because of that. Um, but I think if we're including like pencil and paper, tabletop games, I think A Quiet Year is also... Um, you know what? And also, I'm going to choose three because I don't care about rules. Uh, <laughs> concept. I think Concept is oh. also... An incredible game for how simple it is. Tell me more about concept and why. I want to know Mm -hmm. why. So I, one of my favorite things that board games can do is force us to think laterally and to come at things from different angles. Uh, Because one of the best ways to refine any skill you have is by putting constraints on yourself. Um, So there's like all of these artistic movements and like writing movements where writers and artists limit in themselves, like very, you know, put very rigid constraints on themselves and created these like masterful artworks. Um, And I think that the the same is true for thinking um, and like just mental exercises. Um, And so I think that the the games do a really good job of that because they give us a very clear rule set for what we're allowed to do. Um... And so the thing about concept is that you have to describe a person or an object um, using only pictures on this giant board that they give you of all these different pictures. And you can connect those pictures to each other and you can use those pictures both for what they literally mean, or you can think about them more metaphorically. It's very similar to um, if any listeners have played uh, like Codenames. Um, I think Codenames Pictures, the Pictures version of Codenames is very similar to that. Um, But I think Concept really takes that, the idea of Codenames down to its like core trying to think of a word other than concept um, (laughs) down to its core concept and, you know, really distills it down into this like pure abstract thinking puzzle game. Um, And what's so funny is like we, my partner and I got that game, not like on a whim, but it was, it was something that we, you know, had heard a lot about and we really wanted to play it. And so we got it, loved it but didn't really think much about it. It was just like, oh yeah, like that's, it's a simple game, you know, whatever. Mm. But anytime we would bring it home for holidays or like bring it to parties, everybody loved it. Like for some reason, just like everybody always wanted to play concept. And so it has become like one of our like number one board games Um, just because people are so into it. And I think that that is part of what makes it such a strong um 
contender for use in a classroom is that it's very, um, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? It's very accessible. Mm-hmm. It is super easy to pick up. I think it's a super simple. We honestly, <laughs> we, when we play it, we don't even use like the point system. We just do it for fun. There's yeah. like no winners or losers. It's just like, let's try and describe these things using these little colored cubes and pictures. And it's, it's a good time. And we can just spend, you know, a couple hours just putting cubes on pictures and guessing. And it's, I don't know. It's great. I love concept. Zoe, where can people find more Zoe? They can find me on YouTube. If you just search Zoe B in the little bar at the, up at the top, you'll find my picture. It's me smiling behind a tree or something. Uh... And that's it. I'm nowhere else. I would like to recommend your most recent video on uh, our fascination of with uh, uh, the end of the world and how a lot of the perceptions we have about that that have been uh, built up by media are just untrue. And yeah. I've discovered a lot <laughs> about many of the assumptions I had being totally totally subverted by your video so i would recommend people watch that and i also really enjoyed your video about uh minecraft fan fiction and how you were writing it i thought i thought that was forgot about that one yeah (laughs) our last game of this episode is one that i identify with a lot because i also grew up on an estate obsession comes from karina games (laughs) should i start that again oh no i i mean (laughs) Obsession comes from Cayenne Games by designer Dan Halligan with art by Dan Halligan. Cayenne Games. You know, now I got that wrong because of this, this I'm interruption. I'm sorry, bad joke, Elaine. I also bad, grew up upon an estate. <laughs> it was bad. A different kind of estate. It's still an estate. Yeah. There was All a right. gardener that came round and everything. <laughs> I'm sure there was. From the council. Where do I even begin? Again, this is this is not a new game. This has um, been around the block, right? The estate, I guess, maybe. Hey! Uh, and Got beaten up. Bit of a hidden gem. Lots of people kind of like, oh, I really like Obsession. You know, there's that sort of vibe going on. I held off for a very long time before trying it because... I am a sucker for nice art assets. I do not think that Obsession has very nice art assets. It looks it it looks like you know kind of I wanted to say homemade. That's I think that's way not what I was going for. But do more you mean like homey. No. What do you mean? I don't know. Like more like um I don't know. This basic, I guess. It's it's very it's very um you know like art assets via microsoft word there's some 18xx no it's the 18xx is is again i'm not i'm I'm gonna get hatred for this aren't i (laughs) i don't know where you're going with this i don't like the art assets no i I understand that right i think i think is it because so you have tiles but they don't really have any art on them themselves yeah because all they have is a color and then a dull color and a little bit of um iconography yeah, and the, the, these sort of filigrees around that look like you know, like this is this is how you would have designed like you know, like uh, a zine in two thousand and three. A zine, isn't it zine? Z- like sure, magazine. Z- yeah, sorry, zine. Uh-huh. Um, um, or a zoom. 
funny. Anyway, yeah, like a zine in 2003 where you put some like, you know, filigrees above I see. Uh, on Microsoft Word and below, you know, <laughs> in the header art. and footer. Yeah, some clip art. You know, it's that. And I just, I'm, I, I, it's fine. I'm not criticizing the game. I understand that sometimes there is an art budget and, you know, like all of that. That's, that's fine. It's just lack of personal appeal. It doesn't appeal. gel with you. Yeah, it yes. just doesn't gel with me. I don't think there's anything wrong in saying that. Anyway. Uh, it's functional though yes it is functional uh so you know the, the art assets didn't didn't inspire me to try this game right but it is also the theme uh, so this is riffing very heavily on the works of jane austen and we're gonna talk about that later on uh so i'm gonna put it, put a pin in this right we'll save that discussion for the end uh and and just talk about the game and what it's trying to do we'll we'll get back to the theming later um so in obsession you are a victorian family who is uh definitely not poor but poor in the eyes of uh the high society uh you have no reputation and virtually no money you do have butlers and you have sorry am i giving away my feelings about this anyway uh you have butlers and, you know, you can invite fancy people over for various soirees, like a game of whist or some bowls or, you know, have a chant about how the colonialism is going. Literally. Um, You're getting into theme again now. Yeah, I, yeah, I know. Yeah. I can't I can't get... I just can't shake it. I'm sorry. Anyway, <laughs> so, so you play as these people and your job is... Uh, to have the most victory points at the end of the game and you'll achieve this each round you will choose a section of your estate uh like so for example your garden right and then if you're going for a game of bowls in your garden you've chosen your garden you put it as the active part of the estate and then you need to invite certain types of guests so some events will say gentry which means any kind of guest some will say ladies or gentlemen uh, and then uh, you pick guest cards from your hand, and these guest cards will provide you with various rewards. The building that you picked will also provide you with a reward. So these rewards could be money, victory points, reputation, new guest cards, and so on. So you're kind of building this cadre of usual suspects that you'll be inviting over for parties, and they'll give you money or prestige, you know, all, all, all kinds of things that a normal person might want and uh and and through that you'll be able to purchase more buildings for your estate get higher quality guests um get even more reputation and and so the engine chugs uh and of course um the game itself i i found quite enjoyable i don't know about you did did yeah. you yeah so, yeah there's there's quite a few considerations because you never quite always have what you want so for example you might have a guest that you really want to play but you might not have the right servant for them or you might not have enough prestige to deploy them or or you don't have quite the right building or if you put this building you will because the thing is every time you put a building you then flip it and it'll have like a higher point reward generally uh, and so you never want to use the same building twice. You want to flip new buildings and they have different requirements for guests. And like, it's a puzzle. You're, you're figuring things out and you're building an engine. Yeah, and you can buy parts of the building that you can't actually use yet because your prestige isn't high enough. But, mm. And they'll just stay in your sort of tableau until your prestige is high enough to be able to use them. And if you don't, by the end of the game, that's negative victory points. Yeah, which is quite, again, thematically funny because it's like you, you bought this, like, I don't know, 
what do rich people have? A darts room, right? No, no, no not darts. They don't. Rich people don't play darts. Shut but. up! This is my this is my version of rich people, right? Uh, anyway, yeah, you, you buy this darts room, but you know you can only invite you know the most prestigious dart players who won't come to your party yet. So you have this darts room, and and no one can use it, right? No one's there to play the piano in the darts piano. room. Piano, <laughs> yes, I said it like. <laughs> like a fancy person Joanna. uh yeah yeah no you were right yeah it's it's very very odd in that in that sense um i enjoyed the game i enjoyed the different sort of um weaving threads of it of you need this to get this but you don't have this thing that you need to get this you know what i mean like mm-hmm. it, it's all intermeshed and i think that is done very well um because there were times when i felt like i had a turn where i could do a lot of things that i had built up to a turn where i could do a lot of things and there were other turns when i felt like okay i'm back to square one now and i need to start building up again i start needing to think about what buildings do i want is there anything out there that i that i can use right now or is there something i can build up to and if i do get something i can build up to how do i do that and i think that was a lot of fun uh to try and solve that puzzle yeah. I lost horribly. You absolutely took it away, but I still had fun doing it. I mean, uh, so th- there are kind of like very aspirational elements of it. Like you, you get like this, uh, you know, fancy guest in your in your hand, and you can't play it because you know his name is Lord Pontius Toff or something like that. You know, uh, general of some war or another, and like everyone would love to have him over, but he can't come, right? Because because you're just not fancy enough yet. So so you kind of, but you like really want that reward because yeah. you have goals in your hand and it's like, oh, if you achieve like this level of prestige, maybe you'll get like extra points. So you're like, oh, this would be really good. So you have plans for Lord Pontius Toff. And, uh, and you know, you're, 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 you're scheming and sort of building up towards it. it it's, there's a nice cadence to it. Um, there's a lot of kind of weird and random clunky things that I think sometimes like detract from it. Do you know what I mean? Like, for example, like you get a goal that's like normally goals will reward you like five, seven points. And there's a goal that says, oh, if you have these three tiles in your bill, in your estate, you know, it's 15 points for this goal tile. So not only is it chance to draw that goal tile, but then there's also chance to like whether these tiles are going to come out because the bag of tiles is humongous. Yeah. Like, there's just a lot of stuff in and there. And quite often they didn't come out. So in the last game that we played, I was waiting and I thought, I'm going to keep this one because in our first game, you got rid of that objective almost immediately. I didn't know that because mm. I, it's that secret. But at the end of the game, you told me I got rid of this almost immediately. But I thought, no, I'm going to keep this one. And then I just, like halfway through the game and not, not one of those tiles have come out yet. And during the game, you get another objective and you have to get rid of some objectives. So there is a kind of um, allowance for, okay, well, maybe I will not be able to achieve this mm. so I can get rid of this objective. And you don't lose anything for having an objective you can't fulfill. It's not as if it's negative points. It's just not positive points. But I agree with you totally that that some of the objectives do seem... A lot harder to to get, or not harder, sorry, um, a lot more chance uh, in getting them, in yeah. achieving them than, than other ones. Mm. Or just getting them to begin with, because it's a random draw, right? Like, so you might never even have an opportunity to go for this 15-point card, whereas someone could 
get it in their hand and then like all the right tiles come out it's like hey and there are ways to push for tiles for example there's a variant that just bins a tile at the end of every round so that makes these objectives more likely but again there's the variance whether you're going to get the objective or not so this there's weird little things in it and this is just one example right the, i think there's quite a few things like that in this game where it's just like it's quite an odd design choice and i imagine uh, a lot of the decisions uh in this game have borne themselves out of the theme because again you are playing you know the lives of the ponzi people in the victorian times uh, i think actually there's a bit in the rule book that says if you grow up on a council estate you probably won't be very good at this game because you just don't understand how this works <laughs> <laughs> i'm just kidding there's not there's re- before we get letters there is not i'm just being being daft all right okay um, but no, I, I I understand what you're you're saying. Um, there are a few little bits um, that that kind of don't quite make sense. But I think in the general overall of the game, they they fall by the wayside a little bit. They didn't stand out as being oh this is awful to me. And mm. there were lots of little things I did like, like how when you pass, uh, you can clear off the 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 tiles, so you can mm. refresh the entire set of tiles. If there's nothing there you want, you can just refresh those. Or you can get money uh, mm-hmm. when you pass instead. So there are things to think about. And the way that the servants, uh, the way the servants move around. So they have like, you use them, uh, you employ them uh, to do the thing. Then they sort of have a little rest and they go to the servants quarters and then they come out again. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, the way that cycles uh, makes you think about what cards you can play and what buildings you can go to and what you can do. So it makes you think ahead. Um, and so there's a lot of planning going on in this game and some of it works out and some of it doesn't necessarily work out. And I thought I was doing all right when we when we played this the first time um, and it turns out I wasn't. But I never thought at any point there is nothing I can do here. Mm. I never thought I'm stuck. Right. Yeah. Uh, like I can I can pass if I've not got the cards I want. I can pass and, and get my cards back. Um, so I didn't have a problem with that. Mm. Mm. So there is an expansion for this. It's called the Upstairs Downstairs expansion, which adds a boatload of stuff, adds different kinds of servants, which can do different kinds of things, like the cooks and uh, use, a useful man. There's a <laughs> useful man that you can add to your game. Uh, there's also like a fifth and sixth house. Oh my God, the house names. So you, you, can, you can play as someone called the Asquith family. Which, like Robin Asquith, yeah. Yeah. I don't know who that is. Anyway, uh, and yeah, so you 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 have two more families. There's the Wessex expansion, which adds the Wessex family, and then uh, the upstairs downstairs adds the Howard family. Then there's milestones and new servants and different modes of play. Anyway, uh, I would only recommend the expansion. Having played with it, I would only recommend to someone if you know you like obsession. But the, the rule book does genuinely this yeah. time. The rule book does say that it says you know if you've not played the base game, do that first before you jump into the expansion. But I mean, buying it in general, like oh, I, I, see. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say, oh, I'm interested in this game. You know, because it is an interesting Euro game. I think it's it's a compelling, interesting Euro game. Uh, I wouldn't say, oh yeah, get the expansion as well. I would say the expansion dilutes the game and not just in the number of tiles and the number of guests that it adds, but it also dilutes the tension because there's a very clear tension in the base game. 
uh, that is like, ugh. oh, and then there's two modes. There's also the extended and the regular play mode. I'd say play the regular uh, uh, game mode unless you don't like tension. If you want like a more kind of free going experience, yeah, the extended mode will let you achieve more things. Um, but I, I think I preferred the base game actually, strangely. There's some, there's some things that the expansion adds that feels like, oh, okay, you can sort of mitigate some of the bad luck stuff. And there's there's a whole mode that just removes many chance elements from the game, you know? If you want to play like that, you can. Um, but but I think I think the base game is fine and interesting. And I don't think you necessarily need all that extra stuff. No, I think the expansion does what it says on the tin. You know, it's an expansion. It adds a little bit more. Of everything. Uh, of everything. That's yeah. my least favorite expansion. Is it? Yeah. yeah it doesn't is... do anything very different. It it makes the servants more useful. <laughs> so <laughs> rather than just being able to uh or having to attend to someone, uh they can make it so that your reputation doesn't have to be quite as high or you know, things like that, right? Mm. So or they give you extra money, you know, if they if they're in attendance. Um, so they do do little things like that. And I think, yeah, I think you're right. If you've played this game a lot and you really like it, uh, adding something a little bit extra would be would be nice. And being able to play with a different family, because each each family has a has a starting bonus, which mm-hmm. are different. Mm-hmm. So um, the Howards are different again. You know, the, yeah. the new ones are different again. Uh, and I think, yeah, if you like it a lot, then this might be something you'd be interested in. Let's talk about the theme now. We yeah, we almost did already. Yeah, we almost did. I so, don't. I don't okay. think we can hide our uh, feelings about. No, uh, we theme. don't like it. Um, but also, let's let's kind of uh, contextualize things a little bit. So, this is riffing a lot on the works of Jane Austen. It does so by having the words "pride" and "prejudice" in the subtitle. Mm-hmm. Right. I don't think the influence is hidden. I would say that if you want an accurate historical representation of how rich people were awful in the Victorian times, this game simulates that very, very well. What that has to do with Jane Austen escapes me. I mean, not, okay, not quite, because Jane Austen's work is about that in a way, right? And I should preface, none of us are Jane Austen experts in any way whatsoever, I, I've not read a single one of her books, but I, I I have in the past, you know, via osmosis absorbed, you know, like I've seen the Pride and Prejudice film at some point, you know, I've definitely seen Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, which was fine, I guess. Uh, but but we made a point. We sat down and watched the 1995 version of Sense and Sensibility with Emma Thompson yeah. and Alan Hugh Rickman, Grant. Hugh, Hugh Grant and Hugh Laurie, both and the Hugh Hughes. Laurie. Uh, Kate Winslet, you know, what a cast, what a cast. Um, Anywho, I enjoyed that because it was nothing like the game, thematically. Uh, Because from what I understand about Jane Austen is that her works center around her protagonists. And I I know that there's basically two different kinds of protagonists in Jane Austen's work. There's ones that are together and ones that aren't quite together. So we watched Sense and Sensibility because it had both. It had the one that was together and the one that wasn't together. And they were sisters, both of the trials, tribulations. The whole point of that film to me was how these women have overcome uh, the sexist, trappings of horrible rich victorian people um 
by not succumbing to any of that nonsense and staying true to themselves. The point of obsession is to get money, get famous, get famous people marry in your someone. thing, marry someone. Oh yeah, the Fairchilds, right? Someone. Yeah, yeah. And and be successful that way. It feels antithetical to Austin. And I appreciate that I'm not an expert. But even from my layman's perspective, I was like, this is nothing, this is nothing like it. I like the way you say Austin. It's nice. Um yeah, I like you, I've not read any Jane Austen. Uh, I just I just haven't. I I don't know why. Uh, I just haven't. Um, but I did have friends that really liked it. And I feel like I've learned from them uh, because, you know, I I was interested in things that they were interested in. Um, and the sense I always got about Jane Austen novels is like you, is that there is this theme of one of the themes in, in her works was not marrying for status or for. Uh, respect it was marrying for love mm. or pursuing someone that you that you actually like rather than because it's a political good idea mm. um and when we played this game i thought when do we get to that bit when do we get to the the subversion of of what we are doing here of mm. okay you're playing these these families that are vying for reputation and vying for money and and that's all they want to do is build their estate get more money uh and caught one of the Fairchilds because they are the prize and that felt quite icky it does and it's funny that in my interview with Zoe we talked about how uh, a lot of games are framed through conflict and therefore all you can take away from that is conflict and here the game is framed through conflict once again and and all we get out of it it seems like like kind of like a bad lesson about what Austin's work is about Whereas it's not representative of it. It fails that because it approaches the subject matter from a totally wrong angle, right? Because we, we, we pit it in a confrontation against each other. We can, we can never achieve that satisfactory ending of a Jane Austen novel no. where, where you find closure, where you find solace in love, you know, where things turn out just quite all right and you've learned something in the process uh, th there, there is none of that. You don't learn anything. Mm. You just, you just vie for power and money and prestige, which I, I mean, okay. So here's the thing. It, it's also very historically steeped in, like the 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 guest portraits on the cards are like kind of black and white Victorian photographs. Um, you know, it, it feels historically accurate. Well, it, in the rule book, you know, it has a lot of uh, consultants for the mater source material. Yes, and I suspect the historical accuracy was was think, very important. Yeah. I think it's funny that this this game, which is a fairly modern game, you know, where it came out in twenty sixteen, I think yeah, you said, I think so, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, is 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 kind of doing the opposite of what a lot of modern interpretations of austin are doing whereas modern interpretations of austin like tv shows and films oh. they're moving away from historical accuracy because they're trying to get this spirit mm, yeah, of what exactly yeah austin but, was talking about but, but yeah that this game doesn't pretend to be a jane austen game it's just based on the jane austen 
I don't know, world themes. I don't know, but it it doesn't. You're you're right. It doesn't hit that mark for for me. Um, and and it is interesting because you know we have these these modern interpretations that that change the setting. For example, it it doesn't necessarily have to be in Victorian England because we still have some of these problems now. People still end up getting uh, married because of the family they're marrying into mm. not necessarily for love or or whatever so and and this game you know i i know that this happened in history i'm absolutely not doubting the historical accuracy of this at all i know that this happened in history but do i need to play a game about it this is this is the crux of the matter and why we wanted to talk about it for us both of us playing this game felt cooey it just felt cooey it felt so cooey yeah, um, I know that that other things happened in history too, but yeah. do I want to play something that should be enjoyable and fun and light about these things that weren't good in, especially in parts of my history? In in in, I know these things. I know Britain is a horrible historical country. We've done awful things. I don't necessarily want to play a game about them that represents them like this. That that. I want to know other stories about the people. I want to, I wish this game was about the servants, for example. I wish it told you more about their lives and who they were. Because in this game, every uh, uh, nobility, I guess, whatever you call them, every mm. upper class person is named, has a portrait and has a little blurb about them. Every servant in this is a wooden coloured meeple. No name, no anything, just this is what... And, and I, I, I... Yeah, this this is what happened in history. Like, the servants were unimportant who they were in their lives. All that mattered was their job, right? Yeah. But I don't want to pursue that in a game. You wish this was more Remains of the Day and less Jane Austen, right? Yeah, maybe. Or, if like, if it doesn't want to go the full Jane Austen and, and pursue her themes and what she explored in her themes... Yeah, maybe go the other way and and go remain to the day type thing. I don't I don't know. It just the whole thing just it felt icky. Yeah, there is a certain ickiness and it's because it is unquestioning in in what it portrays, right? It just like here was the thing. It was like that. I have no doubts that it was. I I'm not sure I'm learning anything good or useful or it's broadening my perspectives in any way or makes it enjoyable. Like, like the game part is enjoyable. Yes. Right. But, but the theme part is, is actively making me not enjoy obsession. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't know. I, I don't mean to say that anyone who enjoys this, uh, you know, should not enjoy it or whatever. No, that no, That's, of not. you know, that's not kind of, it's not what we're doing. We're just, uh, you know, for us, it is about relaying our experience with, how we engaged with the game and that's what we felt i suppose what i would like to know is if if you are a jane austen expert have i got this entirely wrong does this game represent her works well it, or the the themes of her work right, specifically yeah. uh -huh. not the setting yes yeah, so you're sure yeah right um yeah fill us in what do we what are we missing about jane austen uh is it something we should know uh, be nice to hear from you.
That's all the games, and if you have anything to say about any of them, don't forget to drop me an email, elaine at nopunincluded.com. And if you want extra bonus pun, you can subscribe to our Patreon. What's on our bonus pun episode this week, Edgar? We're talking about a solo trick-taking game for Northwood and more of the interview with Zoe B. We had another nice comment that I want to read out. This is from John. They say... Opening with the important part, thank you, Efka, for the recommendation to find London on board for the board gaming meetup whilst I was in London the past two weeks. Met some great people, got some fun games played and had a great time all around and got to eat sausage rolls, which is something I've never had before. And then they go on to say that uh, that like London, any big city can feel unfriendly, which is what we were talking about in the last episode. Mm-hmm. Um, but that, you know, if you speak to people... It, becomes more community feel Uh, and i agree with that oh that's nice i'm glad they had a good time at london on board Mm. i have meant went a few times myself and always enjoyed myself playing games it was nice did you get to eat sausage rolls at london on board i'm not sure i did it at london on board i'm pretty sure i had food at london on board because it's always at pubs and you go in and it's the evening you're hungry you order some food but i love a sausage roll i love a good sausage roll I had one recently that was a double sausage roll. One side was regular sausage. The other side was chorizo. Mm. It was from Marks and Spencer's. Mm, from I the was, services. From the yeah, motorway services. Yeah, but it was, it was quite nice. Like, it was flaky and buttery and all the good things in a sausage roll. Finally, what is the game of the episode? What's your game of the episode? Race for the Raft. Really? Mm. Not raw. I think you know what mine is. Is it raw? It's raw. I don't know. I, I don't normally have to answer this question. I don't normally have to think about it. Can I say equally Ra and Race for the Raft? No, you have to pick one. Oh, do I? Well, my first thought was Race for the Raft, so I guess I have to go with that. What if I say Ras for the Raft? Then you don't know which game I'm talking about. Elaine, we can't pick Race to the Raft because it's designed by a friend Ra, of ours. Ra. We're going to give it to Ra by default, okay? okay right. And and that's, that's, that's kind of how it has to be. All right, that's fine with me. Yeah? Mm-hmm. All right. Okay, well, with that, why don't you say... Goodbye to unquestioning representations of Victorian England. Goodbye unquestioning representations of Victorian England. Goodbye unquestioning representations of Victorian England. <laughs> <laughs>